Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shear, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. This episode is kind of special because it's the first in what will be a three-part trilogy. That being said, it won't be apparent why it's the first episode of the trilogy until the very end, and I'm not going to spoil things now. So, who exactly is the focus of the episode this week? It's none other than Hassan Isabah, a man from medieval Iran whose religious movement led to the etymology of the English word assassin. He lived during a tumultuous time, who doesn't on this show, within the Middle East. Major Muslim dynasties were going through changes that would result in entire sects of Islam being formed out of succession conflicts. Hassan will step into one of those succession crises which will result in the formation of the Hashashins, aka the Order of Assassins, but I've said enough as is. So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to the Islamic world of the late 11th century in Hassan and the Blades of God. There's a lot to cover in the background history this time around. One of the biggest things we have to cover is more or less Islam as a whole. I'm not going to do a deep dive into religion because this is a history show, not a religious one, and I'm not a theologist. But I do feel like I have to justify myself for something maybe you don't think needs to be justified. I've covered Catholic popes on this show before and never felt the need to explain Catholicism and Christianity. That's because I'm from a Christian-majority nation, as are most of the people who listen to this show. I know just how little Islam is understood in America. I'm not going to make any actual judgments about other nations, but... Well, I'll just say that if you are interested in actually learning more about Islam, maybe do your own research. Maybe actually talk to someone who follows the religion. But as I said, I'm not doing a full crash course in Islam. We're just going to scratch the surface so you can better understand Hassan Isabah's story. There are two main sects of Islam, Sunni and Shia. Sunni Muslims make up an overwhelming majority of the religion, with somewhere between 85 and 90% of Muslims being Sunni. The main difference between the two sects is their belief in who is the true successor of the Prophet Muhammad. Sunni Muslims believe the true successor of Muhammad is Abu Bakr, Muhammad's advisor and father-in-law. He would go on to be the first caliph of the Rashidun Caliphate. At its height, the Rashidun Caliphate controlled lands from as far west as Tunisia to Pakistan in the east. Shia Muslims recognize Ali ibn Abi Talib, Muhammad's cousin and son-in-law, as his rightful successor. Ali went on to become the fourth caliph of the Rashidun Caliphate. The branch of Twelver Shia Muslims also do not recognize the first three caliphs as rightful leaders considering their beliefs on the succession of Muhammad. This issue is not a cut and dry thing that can be easily studied. The Quran, from a neutral party viewpoint, doesn't explicitly state who Muhammad chose as a successor. It all comes down to how you interpret certain words and passages within the holy book. Is this word supposed to mean companion, advisor, or guardian? And did Muhammad even really have a say in who was his successor, or was that entirely up to the will of God? I'm not going to say anything further because I don't have a horse in this race. We'll be sticking with the Shia sect of Islam though because that's Hassan's religion. Despite being the smaller sect, there are several denominations of Shia Islam. The largest is the Twelver branch, second largest or third depending on who you ask is the Zaydis, 
The third largest denomination, again or second depending on your sources, and the one we'll stick with is the Ismaili branch. These denominations all differ based on beliefs in the order of the divinely appointed leaders, aka the Imams. Twelvers believe in twelve Imams, the Zaydis branch believe in the first four Imams of the Twelvers but differ on the fifth, with their denominations sometimes being called Fivers. Ismailism believes in the same first six Imams as Twelvers but differ on the seventh, with their denomination also being called Seveners. Ismailis separated from the Twelver Shias with their belief in Ismail ibn Jafar as the rightful successor to the sixth Imam Jafar al-Sadiq despite Ismail dying before Jafar. Around the 10th century, the Ismails actually became the largest denomination within Shia Islam with the rise of the Fatimid Caliphate. This caliphate gets its name from Hamid's daughter Fatima, who they claim ancestry through alongside Ali ibn Abi Talib. They also claimed descendants from Ismail ibn Jafar through his son Muhammad. The Fatimids got their start in Tunisia but would later conquer rival caliphates to control lands stretching into the Arabian Peninsula and even the island of Sicily. They would eventually move their capital to Cairo, Egypt. And one final note on Ismailism before moving into Hassan's story. In Ismaili missionary and military work there are three different levels. The first and lowest form is called fidai, plural form fedayin, which literally translates as sacrifice but means something more like one who will sacrifice themselves for God. These are often the foot soldiers of the Ismaili military structure and will become very important later in the story. Second is the level rafiq, meaning comrade. Third and most important is the dai, meaning missionary. These were figures who engaged in bringing others into the Islamic religion. While Imams are holy individuals who are appointed by God himself, Da'i during the Fatimid era were the leaders of the Islam who were not as, let's just say, celestially important. But one Da'i will set himself apart in history as the leader of a new sect within the Ismaili Shias, a man whose followers will shake the Muslim world and become a nightmare for those even further beyond. He was born Hassan bin Ali bin Muhammad bin Jafar bin Al Hussein bin Muhammad bin Al Sabah al Himyari, but most people refer to him as just Hassan i Sabah or Hassan as Sabah. Most of the information about his life that hasn't been completely transformed into tall tales comes from his supposed autobiography that was lost to time but recorded in different fragments from other books. Hassan was born sometime in the 1050s to a family of Twelver Shias in the city of Qom, Persia, aka modern-day Iran. His father claimed to be descended from the ancient Hemyari Yemenite kings. Sometime in his early childhood, Hassan's family moved to the city of Rey, Iran. Rey was a stronghold for the Ismaili sect of Shia Muslims. Ismailism was on the rise in the area due to the currently ruling Seljuks, a Turkish dynasty who belonged to the Sunni sect, and their propensity for removing other local leaders of the other Shia sects. It was here that Hassan was first introduced to the philosophies of the other Shias. He was soon introduced to a da'i by the name Amira Zarab. It's said that Hassan originally butted heads with Zarab because the young man couldn't wrap his head around how the Dai used, in Hassan's opinions, foreign philosophies. Also, since Hassan was a Twelver and Zarab an Ismaili, they argued over who was the true seventh Imam. 
With further arguments and debates over religion, Hassan's respect for Zarab grew, as did his interest in the other Shia denomination. When he was 17 years old, Hassan came down with a terrible illness that he thought would surely be his death. Frightened that he might die without fully realizing the potential of Ismailism, Hassan vowed to convert to Zarab's religion. When he finally regained his health, Hassan followed through on his promise and converted from Twelver Shia Islam to Ismailism. After his conversion during Ramadan in 1072, Hassan met with another local Ismaili Dai named Abdu al-Malik ibn Atash. Ibn Atash was said to be the chief Dai within the Seljuk territories in Iran. The Dai was so impressed by Hassan that he brought the newly converted young man with him to the stronghold of the Ismailis. Despite the Ismailis being under the rule of the Fatimid Caliphate in Cairo, the actual stronghold of the Ismaili faith was said to be in the city of Isfahan, Persia. It was here where Hassan began his journey on the Ismaili Dawa, Dawa being the Arabic word for Ismaili missionary work where one will become a Fidai, Rafiq, or Dai. He spent several years in Isfahan continuing his Ismaili studies until, in 1077, Ibn Atash decided it was time for Hassan to head off to Cairo. Now that Hassan is beginning his religious journey into the Fatimid capital, let's take a brief step away from his story in order to talk about the current position of the Fatimid Caliphate. The current caliph-slash-imam of the Fatimids was al-Mustansir Billah. He was the 8th caliph and to this day is still one of the longest reigning Muslim rulers throughout history. His reign began fairly prosperously in 1036, though at this time al-Mustansir was only 7 so his mother was actually the one overseeing the caliphate. However, by the time al-Mustansir was old enough to rule in his own right, he began to be considered fairly ineffective as a ruler. His caliphate was slowly being taken over by surrounding powers, other Arab powers in the west, Turkish powers in the east, and the Normans, the ethnically Scandinavian people living in France, putting pressure on Sicily. In order to help secure the little control he had in Egypt, al-Mustansir brought in powerful military leaders to help keep things under control. By the time Hassan was studying in Egypt, al-Mustansir's current military man-slash-vizier, Badr al-Jamali, was essentially ruling the nation as a dictator with the caliph as a figurehead. That being said, al-Mustansir was still the Ismaili imam, which very much counted for something in the grand scheme of things. Al-Jamali helped stabilize Egypt and even helped reclaim Fatimid authority over Mecca and Medina, the two most important cities in Islam. Al-Mustansir had two sons, Abu al-Qasim Ahmad ibn al-Mustansir and Abu Mansur Nizar ibn al-Mustansir. One of those two sons will become the ninth caliph of the Fatimid Caliphate. The other will actually be important for Hassan's story. So let's get back in so that you can figure out who's who. When Hassan arrived in Egypt, it was assumed that the ninth caliph of the Fatimids would be Abu Mansur Nizar al-Mustansir, and from now on he'll just be called Nizar. Hassan had ingratiated himself into the court of al-Mustansir to the point where he was basically the second highest man in terms of religious importance in Cairo. Unfortunately, al-Jamali preferred al-Mustansir's other son, Abu al-Qasim, for the position of Imam Caliph. The disagreement between the two men became so heated that al-Jamali attempted to have Hassan imprisoned for treason. 
This next bit may be apocryphal, but apparently a minaret collapsed when Hassan was supposed to be imprisoned, and Al-Jamali took this as a sign that God wanted Hassan to go free. In 1081, after his exciting times in Egypt, aka after Al-Jamali banished him, Hassan decided it was time to head back to Isfahan. Now a full-fledged man of Ismailism, Hassan Isaba continued his path on the Doha. He traveled all across Persia until, in 1087, he finally came to Delam, a center for Shia Muslims resisting control from the Seljuks. Fast forward a bit, and Hassan has become the Dai of Delam in the city of Rudbar. Around this time, it was clear that the Fatimids, under the supervision of al-Jamali and his son, were planning on having Abul Qasim ascend as the next Imam Caliph despite previous promises to Nizar. Hassan saw it as his duty to continue the Dua in the name of Nizar while also protecting the local Shia population from the oppression of the Sunni Seljuks. In order to fully carry out his mission, he would need a solid base of operations. In 1088, he found one in the mountaintop castle of Alamut. Unfortunately, the castle was already occupied, so Hassan began a two-year-long bloodless takeover of the surrounding area. He was also doing this while in hiding after running afoul of a Seljuk vizier named Nizam al-Mulk. The Fedayeen and Rafiq under Hassan infiltrated the surrounding valley and a nearby village and slowly converted the local population to Ismailism. Once this was complete, Hassan and his followers were able to easily approach the fortress and gain control, after Hassan kinda sorta tricked a local landlord into paying the previous owner for control of Alamut. It's said that after getting control of Alamut, Hassan only left his room in his castle twice in his remaining 35 years of life, both times to go up to the rooftops. Whether this story is true or not, it probably isn't, it helped add to the mystery of Hassan's character that would further influence the perception of him and his followers. Meanwhile, things were not going very well in Egypt. Badr al-Jamali's son, al-Afdal Shahanshah, succeeded his father as vizier-slash-dictator of the Fatimid Caliphate. He followed his father's path of being in the anti-Caliph Nizar camp. When al-Mustansir died in late 1094 without officially naming an heir, al-Afdal made his move and positioned Abu al-Qasim as the new Imam Caliph, now going under the name al-Mustali Billah. Nizar fled to the city of Alexandria and began a revolt to take his rightful place as Imam Caliph of the Fatimids and Ismailis. He quickly gained support from local politicians and judges, and support from the local populace soon followed. Throughout 1095, the two sons of al-Mustansir battled back and forth until Nizar was forced to surrender. Al-Mustali had his brother taken back to Cairo, where Nizar was essentially buried alive. Several of Nizar's family members, including a possible son, fled from Egypt and found safety further east. People began turning to Hassan Isaba, aka Nizar's most vocal supporter, as the leader of the pro-Nizar camp of Ismaili Shiism. It was with his guiding hand that the Nizari Ismaili sect of Islam was founded, along with it the Nizari Ismaili state centered around Alamut. And with the Nizari Ismaili state came the creation of Hassan's organization of Fedayeen called the Hashashin, more commonly known in English as the Order of Assassins. <music> 
The term hashishin literally means users of hashish, aka cannabis. That's not to say the Nizari Fadi'in were drug users going out and killing people. That term is said to have two origins. The first origin is as a derogatory term used by a Fatimid caliph, using it in a sense to mean outsiders. Ironically, that caliph was later assassinated by the Nizari assassins. The other origin of Hashashin is thought to be a mispronunciation of the Arabic word Assassiyun, meaning people of principle. The derogatory meaning or accidental mispronunciation of the term was lost a couple centuries later when Marco Polo returned from his time in Asia with tales of the assassins. He claimed that the assassins were members of a cult whose leaders would force them to take all sorts of drugs before going out and doing their murderous business. The term the assassins of Alamut probably used for themselves during their own time, besides Nizari Ismaili Fadiyin, was probably Batinia. Batinia is an Arabic term used to refer to groups who believe they have an esoteric knowledge of Islamic scripture. Some historians claim, though, that Hassan himself was fond of the term Assassiyun to refer to his disciples. Ironically, it's through the term Hashashin and not Assassiyun that we get the English word assassin. The Fedayeen of Hassan's new religious sect were trained in the Arabic martial art of Firusiya. This was mostly an equestrian style of combat, but they would also implement styles of disguise into their training. Of course, you don't get to be called assassins if you don't assassinate people. Hassan believed that the best way to send a message was not through mass bloodshed, but a single high-profile kill. With that in mind, the Order of Assassins usually killed their targets in public spaces so they could get as many eyes on their work as possible for the intimidation factor to really sink in. Stories of their methods were warped and mythified over the years until they eventually became shadowy killers not too dissimilar to modern depictions of ninjas. But these warriors were very real humans who were simply soldiers who were wholly devoted to the cause of Nizari Ismailism. The first kill attributed to the assassins was the murder of Seljuk vizier Nizam al-Mulk. As said before, the Nizari stronghold butted up against the Seljuk territory, and this powerhouse was not terribly fond of the new growing religious sect. After a series of skirmishes and uprisings from the Nizaris and other Ismailis in the region, Al-Mulk sent out two different armies, one to Ridbar, the region near Alamut, and the other to Kuistan, which is in the modern-day region of Khorasan in Iran, where Hassan had sent some of his disciples. Hassan called upon other Ismaili allies in Persia, who called upon their own armies in order to push back the Seljuks. Though his army was routed, Al-Mulk survived, albeit injured in battle. Hassan then commanded an unnamed member of the Nizari Fedayeen to kill the vizier. Near the city of Nahavand, while en route to Baghdad, Iraq, the assassin managed to sneak up close to Al-Mulk and stab him. With his death, the Seljuks temporarily pulled back from fighting against the Nizari state. And though conflicts would flare up throughout the years, the Nizari Ismailis would remain independent and free to continue their way of life. In the following years, Hassan expanded the Nizari state to several other cities and fortresses throughout Persia, as well as several in Syria. Hassan ordered about 50 more assassinations, mostly against Seljuk targets, during his time as the first Dai of Nizari Ismailism. And that's kind of it for Hassan's story. 
Like I said, a lot of historians claim that he didn't even leave Alamut for most of his life. He was married and had kids, but his mission to serve God and the Imams always seemed to come first. But his legacy would live on for centuries in both Nizari Ismailism and the Order of the Assassins. Let's talk about Nizari Ismailism first before we continue on with the Assassins. Nizaris currently make up the largest sect of Ismaili Shiism. They emphasize acceptance of other cultures and religions, the practice of social justice, and the practice of ijtihad. Ijtihad is an Islamic legal practice that centers around using personal judgment for legal matters rather than solely relying on encoded Islamic laws such as laws stated in the Quran. Historically, this was a practice only used by Sunnis, but over the centuries, it has become more common among different Shia denominations. As with many other Muslim sects and branches, Nizari Ismailism briefly had its own split in who was to serve as the next Imam. They actually split twice, though it was the same two groups both times. These two groups are the Mumini Nizari and the Qasimi Nizari. They argue over who was the successor to Imam Ali al-Hadid ibn Nizar al-Mustafa li Adin Allah after his death in 1136. Al-Hadid was said to be the grandson of Nizar who had been smuggled out of Egypt. Qasimi Nizari believed that the next Imam was al-Hadid's son. Mumini Nizari believed that the Imamate passed over to a man named Rashid Adin Sinan. Sinan was the leader of the assassins in Syria following Hassan's death, where he acted as Da'i. The first split ended in 1221 with the ascension of Imam al-Adin Muhammad III. The two sects of Nizari Ismailis would split again in 1310, this time for good, in regards to the succession of Imam Shams al-Din Muhammad. Mumini and Nizari claimed the rightful Imam was Imam Shams' elder son al-Adin Mumin. Qasimi Nizari claimed the rightful successor was the Imam's younger son, Qasim. The Mumini Nizari line of Imams eventually ended in 1796 after the disappearance of the 40th Imam, Amir Muhammad al-Bakir ibn Haydar al-Mutahar. The Qasimi Nizari line continues up to the modern day with the 49th Nizari Imam Aga Khan IV who has been Imam since the death of his grandfather in 1957. Aga Khan IV is the founder and chairman of the Aga Khan Development Network which promotes health, education, and economical development in developing nations. I for one think it's really nice that a religious sect formed out of a politically driven feud that also spent a couple centuries being known for being assassins is currently led by a man who is focusing on helping those in need. Aga Khan IV aside, let's get back to the Order of the Assassins. After the death of Hassan Isabah, the overall number of assassinations fell throughout the region. This led the Seljuks to believe that the Nizari state was falling apart without Hassan in charge. So obviously, they decided it was once more time to try taking on the Assassins of Alamut. The Nizari state in Persia was relatively unharmed by the return of the Seljuks, but the same couldn't be said for the Syria faction of the order. Around the year 1130, forces in the city of Damascus turned on the assassins, and it's said that over 6,000 Nizari Fedayeen lost their lives. Fear of the assassins would not return until 1136 when they killed al-Rashid Bilah, the caliph of the Abbasid Caliphate of Baghdad. 
It was said that there was a week's worth of celebrations at Alamut following the Caliph's death. From there, the assassins, especially those working out of Syria, found renewed strength. They seized control of several more fortresses throughout Syria, including the keeps of Al-Kaf in 1138 and Masyaf in 1140. In 1141, they captured a fortress called Kalat al-Kawabi from European crusaders. In the 1150s, the assassins started developing their relationship with the crusaders. It was the time of the Second Crusade. The assassins had a mixed relationship with the European invaders. In Turkey, they fought alongside crusader forces against the Zengi dynasty, who were given power by the Seljuks. However, in 1152, the assassins killed Count Raymond II of Tripoli. It's believed his death was ordered in retaliation for his creation of the Knights Templar. The Count of Tripoli's death was the first recorded Christian assassination by the Nizari state. In the following decade, after another brief period of decline, the assassins would receive their biggest boost when the Ismaili Imam Hassan II sent the Dai Rashid ad-Din Sinan to Syria. Sinan is probably the best known leader of the assassins after Hassan Isabah. He would lead the assassins of Syria for 30 years, from 1163 to 1193, overseeing much of their conflicts during the Third Crusade. If you've played the first Assassin's Creed game, that's who Al Mualim is based off of. He ordered the assassination of several high-profile targets, including Conrad of Montferrat, the King of Jerusalem, and the attempted assassination of the Ayyubid Sultan Saladin. Throughout the first half of the 13th century, the assassins became further embroiled within the political world of Syria. They also began taking on all sorts of relationships with their neighbors. At one point, one of the Nizari Imams even started enforcing Sunni beliefs, though his son and successor would later revert the teachings of the Nizari state to Shiism. They also became almost intrinsically linked with the Knights Hospitaller, another holy order similar to the Knights Templar. The two groups were never one and the same, but Alamut was said to pay tribute to the Knights Hospitaller throughout this era of their existence. Everything changed for the assassins when the mighty Mongol Empire started making its way into Western Asia. Hulaga Khan, grandson of Genghis Khan, led his armies into the Arabian Peninsula in order to destroy the different Muslim powers in the region. His attacks on the assassins began in 1253. Three years later, Hulagu Khan had seized Alamut where he also destroyed the mausoleum of Hassan Isabah. For the next nine years, the Mongols continued their wars with the local Muslim powers. This war saw what appeared to be the end of the assassins after the death of Imam Rukin al-Din Kurshah, the last Imam to rule in Alamut after the Nizari had briefly recaptured the fort. Ismaili influence began to fade in the region, but several more deaths throughout the 13th century would be attributed to the Nizari Fediyin. The final recorded killing for the Order of Assassins was Philip of Montfort, Lord of Tyre in modern-day Lebanon. Though some people claim that the assassins turned to become hired mercenaries for the Mamluk Sultanate, a Turkish-led dynasty out of Egypt, there is almost no mention of the Order of Assassins operating after the turn of the 14th century. Hassan Isabah's legacy is a powerful one. Though his order of religious soldiers would ultimately be stamped out by the overwhelming power of the Mongols, the actual sect of Islam he helped found still remains to this day. 
He did all of it out of belief in his religion and the survival of the Doa. It would only be long after his death that his greatest works would be transformed, mostly by Marco Polo. It was from then on that Hassan became known by the mystical moniker of the Old Man of the Mountain. Variations of this character would continue to pop up throughout Renaissance literature and continue up through the modern day with the Order of Assassins, especially those out of Syria during the Third Crusade in the 1190s, serving as the basis for the video game Assassin's Creed. However, the assassins were very real people who fought against very real opponents and had a major effect on the landscape of Western Asia. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and subscribe to the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. I said at the top of the show that this episode would act sort of as the first episode in a trilogy. Well, the next two episodes of this show are going to be dealing with two major rulers from the era of the Third Crusade, both of whom would develop relationships with the assassins. Next time, we're dealing with the Middle Eastern side of the Crusades as we cover Sultan al-Nasir Salah al-Din Yusuf ibn Ayyub, more commonly known as Saladin. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. (laughs) 